Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Chris Wells, and he'll be answering your questions on the Williams Fork River, more than just a buggy place. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Chris a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on the right side of our web pages, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share the podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. If you have a moment, do it while we're in the middle of the show and let other people know about what great education we're providing for folks out here. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted as the property of the Knowledge Group Pink doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Chris Wells about the Williams Fork River. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dweller's Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. That's leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Chris, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away on our show tonight, and for our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Chris's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. I've got a list of books here that I'm free to give away, and whoever wins, I'll send that list out to you, and you'll get to pick one of those books off the list. So here's how you can win one of those Stackpole Books. Go to the homepage at the end of the show when I ask a question and provide an answer to the question I ask, and it's going to be something that Chris and I talk about during the show. So take good notes, fill out that form on the homepage, submit it, and if you're the first person, to submit it along with your location and your name, then you'll win a book from Stackpole Books. Our guest tonight is Captain Chris Wells. Chris is a full-time, year-round professional fly fishing guide and the owner of Mile High Angler and Tailing Charters. He is also the fishing ranch manager at the North Fork Meadows, a pristine stretch of private water on the North Fork of the South Platte. 
As a native of Colorado, Chris started fly fishing around the age of five with his father. Together, they spent countless hours fishing the Colorado River, the South Platte River, and all over the western United States. Chris started guiding for trout while attending college at the Metropolitan State University of Denver, where he earned degrees in communications and in business management. Since then, Chris has been guiding full-time for the past 22 years. He now splits his year between the world-class rivers of Colorado and the legendary flats of the lower Florida Keys. Chris is a certified U.S. Coast Guard captain and guides the lower Florida Keys from March through June. Chris has been guiding in the Florida Keys for the past 15 years. In the Florida Keys, Chris fishes for tarpon, bonefish, and permit. However, his specialty is guiding fly anglers to the ultimate catch, a tarpon on the fly. Tarpon fishing has consumed his every thought since the first time he hooked one at the young age of 18. Since then, he's been had a passion for, as, or as others would describe it, an obsession for fly fishing for tarpon. Chris spends the remainder of his year guiding anglers on world-class rivers of the Colorado, July through February. Chris, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks, Roger. Good to have you here tonight. We're coming into winter here. How's fishing been? <laughs> It's been really good. We've had really unseasonably warm weather for the last about a month or so. It doesn't seem like winter's ever going to really show up, so fish has been pretty good this fall. Yeah, yeah. So you've been guiding on the Williams Fork throughout the fall so far? I have. I've been, uh, yeah. I've been up on the Colorado and the Williams Fork most days. Uh, I've been over on the ranch on the North Fork a bit as well, but doing quite a bit of trips up on the Williams Fork. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, tell us, we've got people listening from all over the world, and so tell us where the Williams Fork is, and so people can kind of get oriented if they've never been to Colorado. Sure. So the Williams Fork River, at least the stretch that I fish, is in north-central Colorado, in between the town of Partial and Kremlin, kind of closer to Partial, actually. And I fish the tailwater stretch below the Williams Fork Reservoir. There's a two-mile stretch of public water up there, which is where I spend all of my time when I'm up in that area. Okay. And the fishable water, the headwaters start above the Williams Fork Reservoir, obviously, right? Yeah. So they start up top in the Creary and Bobtail Creeks flow together to actually create the headwaters of the Williams Fork. And then the Williams Fork kind of flows down, somewhat paralleling kind of the, the Blue and the Fraser, just short of the Continental Divide, and it works its way all the way down to the reservoir. So that upper reach is technically considered a freestone. And then from the reservoir down, that's the tailwater stretch. There's more than two miles of water below the reservoir, but there are only two miles of water below the reservoir that is open to the general public. Ah, okay. Is there, above the reservoir, is there any good fishing, you know, small streams? There is. Or? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely some private water up there. There's a handful of private ranches, so you got to be, you know, kind of careful where you are, but there are some areas to go fish up there. You know, fishing just above the reservoir itself, where the inlet is, that's a state wildlife area, and then Denver Water Board owns Williams Fork Reservoirs. That's all public right through there handful of pullouts or spots that are open to the public, kind of mixed in with some private ranch land. Okay, okay. We usually guide, you said the tailwater is below. Yep. How, and that's due to just public access, number one, right? Obviously, it's a good place to fish, but 
Um, sure. Yeah, so the, the pump. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, what happens below that stretch? We'll come back and talk more about that stretch, but I'm just trying to get a picture of how the you know, river fishes down below that or if there's any access points below that that people fish. Below the reservoir, you mean? Below the tailwater, yeah, section. Yeah, the tailwater. That's where everybody fishes. There are very, I think there's very few anglers up above. Like I said, there's a lot of private land up there. There's some private ranches. There is some public stuff. It's a smaller river up there. It can be big at times, just, you know, during runoff, of course. But most of the good fishing is down below the reservoir just because of the aquatic insect life within the river system down there and obviously a tailwater, you know, cold water being released from a reservoir all summer lends itself to prolific aquatic insect life as well as a fishery. Yeah. Now, below the tailwater, though, is there any, does it just kind of peter out right away well, as far as fishing goes? or? So the tailwater, you're saying below the reservoir. So below the reservoir is the tailwater. That's where the no, no, fishing no, I, is. I'm, no, I'm talking about below the tailwater. Uh, I mean, you below said it was like Colorado. A, there's like a two-mile section uh, of tailwater, you said. So I'm yeah, not, so I'm there's talking, a two-mile yeah. stretch. There's a two-mile stretch of public water below the reservoir. So right below right. the reservoir, Denver Water Board owns the river. It's closed to the general public. Nobody's allowed in there. So there's no fishing allowed right below the, the reservoir, but just below that is where the, the public water fishery starts, and that's where that two-mile stretch of water is. Okay, yeah, I understand that. So after the two-mile stretch, is there any additional fishing, or is it all private land or closed off down towards Hot Sulphur Springs and so forth? No, that's the two-mile stretch bumps you right into the Colorado, so there's only okay. between the confluence of the Colorado and then the private land that Denver Water Board owns, there's a two-mile stretch, only two-mile stretch of public, yeah, public access okay. on Williams Fork. Okay, okay. So any other fishing like you described will be above the, the reservoir rather than below it. Um, yeah. Yeah, ab okay. Above it or down on the Colorado because the Williams Fork is a tributary of the Colorado. Yeah, yeah. Much fishing happening on the Colorado through there as well? Absolutely. That's open to the public? There's a, yep, there's a ton of access on the Colorado. There's BLM. There's obviously state wildlife areas. There's a lot of great access from basically just a little bit above Kremlin all the way up to Hot Sulphur Springs. Okay, okay. Is the river all wade fishing, or is there any sections that can be floated? Is that two-mile uh, section? So both the... No, both the Williams Fork and the Colorado through that stretch is wade fishing only. It's not considered, neither of those stretches are considered navigable, okay. so it's not legal to float either the Williams Fork or the Colorado up there. Okay, okay. What about seasonal? Is this a year-round fishery? It is. Both the Williams Fork and the Colorado are year-round fisheries. Obviously, things change starting this time of year. There's not much snow around on the Williams Fork right now, but there will be. But, you know, as long as flows are decent, you know, 35, maybe 40 CFS and up, you know, there's not much ice on the river. That area gets to be pretty cold during the winter. But because it's a tailwater, you know, the water temps are, are warm, relatively speaking, for the time of year, which keeps the, the 
river ice-free and tends to fish pretty well. The only real challenge is getting in there during that time of year because there can be quite a bit of snow. And you know, if there's not a trail beat down in the snow, then you're looking at uh, access probably by snowshoe. Mm, yeah, yeah. I was up there once in February and spent a lot of time keeping my <laughs> pilots free of ice. <laughs> it was pretty darn cold that day. Oh yeah. But yeah. Yep. So. What's the scenery like around there? The whole area up there is kind of unique. It's We're a high desert area up there, mainly sagebrush, juniper, and as you get down into the river valley itself, where the Waves Fork is, we go from, there are still junipers, of course, and sagebrush down there, but you end up with a lot of cottonwood trees. There are some aspens. You've got plenty of willows along the banks, and it's quite lush. The river itself kind of floods that valley with moisture, if you will. It's quite lush, but once you move out and away from the river, it's an arid environment that is mainly juniper and sagebrush. Okay. We had a question about from DBN San Diego. He said, back in the early 2000s, the upper reaches of the Williams Fork became one of my favorite small water streams. By the time I moved away to California in 2007, it was very disheartening to see huge brown swaths of beetle kills around the river and surrounding mountains. Um, how does this area of the river survive today? I think what that gentleman is probably referring to would be the water above Williams Fork Reservoir. And yeah, it, it was definitely, the beetle kill took its toll up there. Still pretty, you know, especially down along the river. I mean, there's a lot of coniferous trees that have survived. There's deciduous trees that grow along the river as well, and willows. But the surrounding area, you know, all the way up towards the top of you pass. That all was hit pretty heavily with uh, beetle kill. And then last year we had the Williams Fork fire, which burned right up pretty much to the upper Williams Fork River. But I think the area is doing just fine. There's, you know, decent soil composition up there. So I think that area will bounce back. Obviously it's going to take some time, but you can definitely see where that fire came right through there. It's a little different, but, you know, the upper is still very pretty. And the fire didn't? wreck havoc with the water like it did on the south no, side? No, because we never had any, no, we didn't have anything happen like on the south flat with the Haven fire, and it was actually yeah. the year after the Haven fire when we had our monsoons that washed all the, the ash, you know, that was would have been held up by undergrowth, but of course all the undergrowth was burned, so nothing like that happened up on the waves fork that I'm aware of. You know, I stay in, in decent touch with the Colorado Parks wildlife biologists and some of the folks up in that area. I don't think there's any issues up there as of right now. You know, potentially down the road, I don't think we had any torrential rains up there this year like we did you know, a handful of years ago in September. I think it, the fishery is just fine, and I think the soil composition up there is good enough. You know, it would be very similar to you know, the Yellowstone fires and how when those fires burned, everything came back even stronger and better than it was before, but that's because there's soil there, unlike the South Platte where it's all decomposed granite where it, it takes forever for anything to grow. So I think as of right now, I think the upper waves work is probably going to be okay. Yeah, good. Good to hear. Yeah, that I'm sitting on top of a big pile of decomposed granite right now in <laughs> Bailey. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Not much soil there at all. I've got a question from Brian Hubbard in Lee's Summit, Missouri. He says, as a person of more advanced age, what are – the closer access points to the river. The point closest to the dam seems to be quite a jaunt. 
what is allowed other than walking or trail bike, and can you comment on the upper Williams Fork closer to the mine and campgrounds? Yeah, you know, as far as the, the upper Williams Fork closer to, I'm assuming the gentleman is referring to the Henderson Mine and the campgrounds up there, I don't spend – it's been a long time since I've spent any substantial amount of time up there, so there's some stuff that's pretty close and easier to get to, I think, up there than the tailwater stretch below the reservoir. I mean, there are two access points for the for the tailwater. One is off the County Road 3. There is a state wildlife area parking lot there. There's a barn, and there is an access point and easement that takes you through part of a ranch there, and that route is – I think probably the most strenuous of the two access points. It does get you straight into the Williams Fork, but I think going in is not hard. It's it's coming out, you know, for folks, I think, a little bit more uphill than the other way. The way I prefer to access the river is coming in from below the town of Partial. I park at the Partial lot across the Colorado River, and then I walk back into the Williams Fork confluence from there. It's all flat. It's a very easy trail. You know, it's, I don't even know if it's quite a mile. It's probably around a mile, but it's a real easy access, whereas the upper parking area off County Road 3 requires you to kind of go up and down, up and down, especially on the way out. When you say you just said you cross the Colorado, you wait across, or is there a bridge there at that point? Or? Yep. No, well, there's both. So at the partial lot, which is just below the town of Partial, you can walk across the Colorado River. You wait it. Oh, okay. You know, if you're... I'm not in Colorado anymore during runoff because I'm down guiding for tarpon in the Keys, but when I used to be in Colorado during that time of year, if the Colorado was too big to cross, then, of course, I would park up up on County Road 3 and hike back in that way. Okay. The Williams Fork was usually pretty crossable, even at higher flows. There is a bridge on the state wildlife area in the Kemp Breeze area down river of the partial lot where there's a bridge on the Colorado that you can use to access. It just puts you a little further away from the Williams Fork. You know, so high water flows, I come in from County Road 3, normal flows, and, and when the Colorado's easily wadeable, then I cross the Colorado River basically just below partial and then walk back into the Williams Fork from that side. Yeah, okay, all right, good. Now, is it pretty, uh, regarding the private water and so forth, is that pretty well marked? Do you, you know, is there any question about where that starts so that people don't get in trouble? You know, for me, it's it's not an issue just because I think I've got it memorized, but I think every year I see signs change. Sometimes they come down, they get taken down by people, or, you know, maybe the Colorado gets big enough, but the whole Colorado through there, you know, basically from right below the town of Parcel, like down the hill from Parcel, where the confluence of Colorado and Williams Fork is, the river right side of the river is 100% private. So in Colorado, we have access to the center point of river. If you're entering from a public access side, you can work your way out to the center line of river. You can fish and cast across as long as you're not going underneath cables and, and private boundaries that way. But you can wade out to center line of river and fish towards the far side, but you cannot physically cross over on foot any further than the center line of river. The Williams Fork is public both sides of the river, so there's no issues with the no issues there, yeah. until you reach, yeah, until you reach the upper end of the public stretch, which is where it becomes Denver Water Board property and it's close to the public. There's a cable that goes across the river up there. Last time I was right at that cable, I don't believe there was a sign there, but I think 
they may have hung some signs. I think one of my guides said that somebody had put another sign up. But Williamsport, public, both sides of the river, no issues there. On the Colorado River, it's river right. So for those folks that may not know what river right or river left is, it's when we're coming down a river in a boat, river right is as you're going downstream on the right-hand side. So that is all private on river right, right at the confluence and downriver of it. And then once you get a little bit below that towards the parking lot, there is actually a stretch of land that is private on both river right and river left. So there's a stretch of water in there that's close to the public. They unfortunately see people fishing that all the time, working their way up to the public. I think they just don't know that it's private down there. All right. There are a couple of places, but I think, folks, there's a neat app out there. I think it's Onyx Hunt app. It's not just for hunting, but it shows property boundaries, public, private, state-owned, federally owned. That's a good place to start. You know, and Of course, calling a guide service that might fish the area or find some maps that will denote as to what is private or what is public. Right, right. Good, good. Well, Chris, let's take a quick break here, and we'll come back. We'll dig more into the, the Williams Fork and, and surrounding area there. So. Hang tight, we'll be right back. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook all within a few miles of each other. But you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. And once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charlielesliefly.fishing.com. That's charlielesliefly.fishing.com or call 303-430-4634. 303-430-4634. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Chris Wells about the Williams Fork River in Colorado. If you'd like to ask Chris a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. So, Chris, I always ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? Tell us about your guide services and your business and what else, whatever else you're involved in right now. Sure. Like you mentioned earlier, I own and operate two guide services, one here in Colorado. It's called Mile High Angler. The website for that is trouttrips.com. We operate year-round, full-time here in Colorado. We guide all over the state, the Colorado, the Blue, the Williams Fork, the entire drainage of the South Platte. We have access to about 40 or 50 pieces of private water, and our exclusive private water is on the North Fork of the South Platte. I manage a stretch of river up there that is one mile in length that's full of trout. It's only 50 minutes from Denver. It lends itself to anyone from beginners to people with mobility issues or handicap access, and then we can also make it as hard on any of the most experienced anglers out there. And then I also guide down the Florida Keys, March, April, May, and June for bonefish, tarpon, and permit. I specialize in tarpon. That's kind of the fish that changes my zip code for the year, uh, or at least for that portion of it. I fell in love with tarpon fishing, and it's just captivated me. So it's a big, big joy of mine to be able to, to share my knowledge and my passion about that species and trying to catch somebody a fish of a lifetime. So 
used to do some destination travel a long time ago, thinking about maybe getting back into it again. But Mexico, Bahamas, Belize, used to take groups of anglers all over the place. And now that I'm, I'm in the Florida game, guiding there for four months a year, kind of back out of that just so that I'm not gone. I got two little ones at home, and it's nice to be around a little bit. But that's what we do, Colorado and Florida. Cool, cool. Why don't you uh, drop your URLs again, your website addresses, so uh, people can find you. Yeah, sure. So the Colorado uh, website address is trouttrips.com, and the Florida Keys website is tailingcharters.com. Perfect, perfect, good. So, folks, you want to connect with Chris on either one of his guide services, you know where to go now, so uh, check him out. Thanks for sharing that, and let's dig back in here. We did get some questions coming in. Phil McCartney in Kentucky asked, uh, has public access to the Williams Fork River been reduced in the years since you've guided there? No, it has not. The same amount of public water is there now as it was, what, 22 or almost 23 years ago when I first started guiding. So, no, it has not been reduced. Uh, okay. The only thing that's really changed up there, and I imagine we'll probably get to that a little bit later on here, but they did a river restoration project up there a few years ago. But other than that, everything is the same up there. Okay, okay, good, good. Uh, I got a question here from Bill Bent in Tucson, Arizona. He says, what's the best time to fish the Williams Fork, time of year? The best time to fish the Williams Fork is the day that you go. <laughs> uh, no, you know, uh, the Williams Fork is a year-round fishery. You know, obviously yeah. it's a lot lot more challenging in the wintertime. You know, getting in there at, at times during the winter can be challenging because, you know, you're post-holing through waist-deep snow if you don't have snowshoes and yada, yada, yada. One of my favorite times to fish the Williams Fork is during the summer, like right when I get home from the Florida Keys, you know, starting basically the 1st of July because it's so full of mosquitoes up there that it keeps everybody else away. So <laughs> that is, I'm kind of, I'm letting out a little secret. So for all of you listening, if I see you up there during that time, no, I'm just kidding. That's one of my favorite times to fish it. You know, if you can handle bug spray and, you know, you wear long sleeves and a buff to keep you covered up, the bugs are tolerable. If you can't stand mosquitoes, do not go up there during the summer months because they're horrific. Yes, in Colorado we have nasty, nasty mosquitoes in areas, and that is one of them. But, you know, I think the latest sports used to be kind of a secret. Like when I first started guiding, there weren't very many people up there. Most of the time I would have that place almost to myself. And, you know, I think the secret's out. There are many more people making the trek up there. So it's busier, which is fine. You know, we just everyone needs to make sure that everybody has their own little space and not encroach on anybody's area. But the fall is, it's a tough place to be in the fall. You know, it's a quintessential fall Colorado River trip. The cottonwood trees just light up bright yellow. You know, we have our big bright blue sky during that time of year usually. It's just gorgeous. you got a chance of seeing moose up there, especially in the fall. But that's when the most amount of traffic is up there during the fall as well. But it fishes great. You know, the springtime is also great. I miss being in Colorado during the spring. Last year, 2020, was the first spring I've spent in Colorado in 15 years because of the pandemic, obviously. So it was kind of neat getting back out and fishing pre-runoff and runoff stuff. You know, all of our rivers really start to come alive 
during the pre-runoff time. That's when we first start getting our first mayfly hatches of the year. So it can fish great. Fish are waking up. They're eager to eat. The weather's a little iffy in the springtime, but you know, as long as you dress for it, it's great. You know, I would say fall is probably the best time just because of the scenery, I think, with the colors. Summer is great because that's when we have the most prolific bug hatches up there, including the mosquito. And then the spring. The spring is spring is a great time. We got big rainbow trout coming out of the Colorado during the spring. Spring, summer, fall. But winter is a unique place up there as well. It's beautiful. There's one question here about adjustments to make for December, January, and February. Does it turn into primarily a midge fishery at that point, or, or is there other approaches you take then? The waves fork is primarily, I would always fish an attractor fly, typically an egg in the winter, and then I drop a little midge off the back end because the fish are keen in on midges, but, you know, the fish don't, they don't forget eggs. The browns are still spawning up there a little bit right now. So during the winter months, running an egg as an attractor and then dropping a midge off, it'll probably get you the most bite for the buck. There are places on the waves where fish will rise during the wintertime, but not too far off on the Colorado, there are some big winter holdover areas where you can catch trout on a dry fly in the middle of winter, January, February. It's a short-lived hatch. It lasts for an hour, maybe two at most. But there's a pile of fish in one deep, big run where they winter. And you get down to the river at 12 o'clock, and you've got some great dry fly fishing for an hour, and then it tapers off. The wintertime is definitely fish are feeding. I mean, even during the summertime, fish feed 90% of the time or more subsurface, but in the wintertime, that's even more true. Yeah, yeah. What species are up there, browns and rainbows? Yeah, so we have brown trout. Brown trout is the primary species of fish up there. Okay. Uh, you know, we used to, the whole Colorado River Basin has changed over the years. When I was a little boy, when I would go to the Colorado with my dad, we would catch primarily rainbow trout, Colorado River rainbow. They were spectacular. We'd catch them up to 22, 24 inches in length, and they were everywhere. But whirling disease has drastically changed that. The Windy Gap Reservoir is kind of the, the big issue up there. And the soft, it's a very shallow body of water. It's got a soft, muddy bottom, so it's a perfect environment for the tubiflex worm which is going to bring in the whirling disease spores. And that depends on which spore of whirling disease or which tubiflex spore. But the whirling disease, either way, has drastically wiped out the vast majority of the, the Colorado River rainbows that were up there. They have come out with other strains of rainbows that they're reintroducing to the area to try to get them to take place that are whirling disease resilient starting with the Hofer rainbow. You know, they stock them typically in the springtime during runoff when the grass or when the, uh, the river is up in the grass so the fish can hide. They don't get eaten by all the bigger fish. And we're starting to see a decent number of rainbow trout around in the Colorado and in the Williams Fork. But brown trout are still king up there. And they, mm -hmm. brown trout are actually, that's my favorite species of, of trout. But there are more browns up there than there are rainbow trout. So you have both of those. I have caught splake in the river up there coming out of the reservoir. And then this year, just, I don't know, probably three weeks ago or so, I had a gal, a customer of mine, she caught two tiger trout on the Williams Fork. And I have I meant to reach out to, uh, to John Ewart, the biologist up there in the valley, to see if they had done any stocking. The biologists up there, they'll stock from time to time, typically broodstock, 
rainbow trout, but there were, we caught a couple of tiger trout, which I've never seen in the Williams Fork or the Colorados. Those are the four species up there, but the primarily ones, brown trout, then rainbow. I've caught two splake in like 25 years up there, so they're few and far between. And then I just caught my first two tiger trout up there, literally same hole. It may have been the same fish. I'm not quite sure. I don't think it was, but nonetheless, we caught some tiger trout. Yeah, yeah. You said browns are your favorite species of trout to fish for. Why is that? Because they're aggressive and they're nasty, mean, hungry fish that uh, <laughs> they just eat. They're aggressive, you know. They they smash bugs up on the surface, especially the caddis. They're really aggressive on those, but they chase streamers around. I just I love the brown trout. They you know the males when they get all colored up during the spawn. I mean they're just beautiful. The big bucks with their kites on them. They're just an incredible fish. They're really aggressive and they love to chase streamers around and. Streamer fishing is, is one of my favorite ways of catching a trout. Brown trout are hands down my favorite, no question. Okay, okay, good, good. Let's take another quick break here, and then when we'll come back, we'll talk about some equipment, some flies, some techniques. So uh, hang tight, everybody. We'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly-tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable, synthetic, and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components that have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com, epflies.com, and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Chris Wells about the Williams Fork River in Colorado. If you'd like to ask Chris a question, just go to our homepage, fill out that form, send it in, and we'll try to get your question answered on the show tonight. Okay, let's see here. Uh, just looking at some of the... Okay, I think uh, there was a question about uh, the mosquitoes on the lower Williams Fork can be brutal. Any suggestions? I think you already answered that, put on... Deet, I guess, right? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, just deet. I mean, deet is the best way to combat that. That long sleeves, sun gloves, and then a buff face mask. You know, even a, a head net that keep them off your face. But if you can tolerate the deet, and you know, it doesn't bother you, the mosquitoes probably won't bother you either. Yeah, yeah. I remember as a kid having to wear those, those screened-in facial whatever you call it, helmet or whatever in Alaska because the mosquitoes were so bad. Sure. Generally in Colorado, there are, you know, very few places where they where I've hit them really bad, but that's one of them, right? Ran them on the Green River in Utah during a raft trip one year where they were just brutal. But most of the time, Colorado's not too bad, so don't let it scare you away from Colorado. Let's see here. Now, as far as equipment goes, pretty standard stuff for Colorado five, six weight over the yeah, I mean, floating lines? Yeah, I don't, I typically fish nine foot five pretty much everywhere. If we're doing some dry fly fishing, I may drop down to a four weight, but a nine foot five weight is kind of your go-to all around, at least for what I guide on. You know, it handles the smaller fish, you still have fun with them, but, you know, it's enough for, for some of the bigger fish. I do fish a six weight for streamer fishing on public water and then definitely on private water. 
we bump up to a six as well because we, we got some fish on the ranch that that are over 30 inches, probably 15 to 17 pounds on the top end. But five weight is more than enough anywhere you're going to go in the state of Colorado. Okay, okay. Let's talk about hatches and flies here. Tell us about maybe kind of give us a calendar of the year of when the best hatches are throughout the year and maybe you could kind of roll through those which produce you know sure. better dry fly fishing which don't that kind of thing you can sure. start anywhere so, spring, we'll, springtime or whatever whatever suits you yeah yeah we'll start in the springs typically in the spring you know in the williams fork and the upper colorado you know our first big bug hatch of the year is the spring betas the blueing alls come out numbers during the springtime and that's the first mayfly hatch that we get up there that brings fish up to the surface it pushes them up into the riffles or somebody's fishing nymphs they can take them off of riffles and gravel bars and whatnot as they're feeding heavily but slower deeper runs or up against banks you can, you can pick up fish on the dun then from spring we move into kind of the late spring and early summer stage which is when we start seeing our caddis up there we start seeing typically in june we start getting pmds up there we've got drakes both green and gray more green or excuse me more gray drakes on the colorado and on williams fork than green i don't even know if i've seen a green drink a green drake on the williams fork i don't think i ever have but the gray drakes are the biggest of mayflies up there. In July, we've got, you know, like I said, we've got PMDs, we've got yellow sallies. We have, actually prior to that, I skipped the stoneflies, which yellow sally is, obviously. But we have the giant Taranarsis up on the Colorado River, which is the salmon fly hatch. They do migrate up into the Williams Fork for sure, but that's primarily on the Colorado. Usually that's going off during runoff. So on a big runoff here, the fish may not take them up top as much because the water's off color and they can't see them, but you can bet your bottom dollar they're eating on them pretty heavy as they migrate because the stoneflies do not go through a complete metamorphosis. They migrate instead of actually emerge. You know, they crawl up on the rocks or up onto the bank and then climb out of the nymphal shuck. But that can be a really fun hatch to try to chase around up there. It jumps great distances. I mean, 15 miles in a day, the hatch can bounce from one stretch of the Colorado to another. It's all water temperature based. It's kind of getting up there, getting familiar with what water temps are at and being able to dial in. But on the Williams Fork, we got a lot of yellow sallies that come off. We've got a lot of caddis. We have betas that come off all summer long up there. We have red quills, which start kind of at the end of summer into fall. They're a lot of fun. In the afternoon, the dry fly fishing can be spectacular on the Fork and on the Colorado with the red quill hatch. We have trichos in the summer months. And, you know, if you find the right spots, there can be pods of fish feeding on the spinners, some big back eddies and whatnot. But they really eat the emergers. Midges are ever-present always throughout the years. I think they kind of get overlooked during the summer months because there's all these other bugs out there. But that's still a, a prominent bug in the, the trout's diet. And, again, as we taper off back into the fall, then that beta hatch becomes the most prolific hatch throughout the fall months, and it offers some spectacular dry fly fishing up there. It's changed because of the way they restructured the river. Some of the best dry fly holes are, are no longer there, unfortunately. 
with the river work that, that was done up there, but there's still some great dry fly fishing to be done. Some of the most fun is up there in the summertime fishing a, you know, a goddard or a, any version of a caddis as an attractor dry fly. I mean, if you're fishing in quick water, you'd be amazed how many fish will come up and smack that thing out of the faster water. It's a lot of fun. And then, and I guess let's back up back to spring again, March, February, March, when the rainbows start getting going and doing their thing, you know, eggs are our player at that point. You really don't get to do a lot of big attractor fishing up there. The fish will take hoppers during the summer months on the Williams Fork and on the Colorado. I don't find myself fishing them too often. Every now and again, a hopper dropper is fun. Then, you know, again, after the uh, the fall beta sash, we move into the midge fishery again. The Colorado River during the late fall, like this time of year, the midge hatches in the mornings are, you know, kind of mid-late morning can be spectacular where you can have a ton of fish in real slow water. They're very slow, deliberate eats, but it can, you know, for somebody that likes to throw small dry flies, you can have an awesome time up there for, you know, a handful of hours during this time of year. What are you using for those midges? What pattern? Griffith snapped or something? Uh, during the latter, you know, like in the, like this time of year, for example, I like a sprout midge. It's got a little white post, can make it a little bit easier to see, but you can fish a really teeny fly and not worry about it sinking as much because it's got that little foam post on it. I fish them in black. I fish them in brown. All of, probably chocolate brown and black are probably my two primaries up there. Matt's midge, an old friend of mine that has moved back to the East Coast to, to guide up there. He came up with a little fly called Matt's midge. It's a really, really fine wing, sparsely tied, but it's killer. It's really challenging to see on the water in the smaller sizes. But I would say that sprout midge is probably my top for the midge hatch during this time of year, in November, early December. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What temperatures, you had mentioned just, you know, kind of in passing, you know, the temperature is the key on these hatches. Are there any specific temperatures that you look for in the water for certain hatches? Not, no. I mean, I just, I know that certain bugs hatch at certain temps. So, mm-hmm. and I know what time of year those temps are more likely to be in the river during that time of year, you know. But every year changes, right? You have a real low water year like this year on the Colorado temps were through the roof. There were lots of stretches of river throughout the state that were closed to fishing because water temps got so high. But, no, I mean, I, I don't even carry a thermometer anymore. I guess I probably mm-hmm. should from a teaching standpoint every now and again, but I don't even own a thermometer for trout fishing. It's not Once you do this enough, it kind of just, it's in your head. It's built into your DNA, I guess, at that point that, you know, during the spring these bugs are going to hatch. You know, during the summer months these bugs are going to hatch. It's more about time of day, and so you start figuring out. Let's say when we're in the summer to fall transition for, let's say, the fall betas, those bugs will start coming off around 1130, and they'll go till like 130. A lot of times I'll try to have my customers either eat lunch by 1130 so we're done, and that way we're fishing at 11.30 when the bugs are coming off, or eat late lunch, you know, around 1.30 or so, so that we're done fishing when the bugs are done cranking. But you just have to get kind of used to what time of day those bugs are going to come off, because during the summertime, that water temp is going to be warmest earlier in the day than it is in the fall or the winter. It's going to warm up earlier in the summer than it does in the fall. You just kind of get used to it. Yeah, and well, you guys are up there all the time, so, you know, you're up there maybe several times a week, and 
and you see that transition take place. Oh, it's a little earlier this year than it was last year, and and you can kind of sure. you know guide yourself that way. Yeah, a little bit more difficult for people that aren't up there all the time. That's kind of what I was searching for, some kind of key. But you just have to. I would just go, go with the flow, right? <laughs> I mean, literally. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, just pay attention to your surroundings. When you start seeing birds flying around, when you start seeing a fish poke his head up in the river every now and again. Start looking around. Take a minute or two and see if you can see bugs coming off. And if you can't recognize them as they're whizzing by, try and grab one or two of them out of the air. But kind of that 48 to 52 degrees, maybe 54, somewhere in that ballpark, that's when the, you know, the better mayfly activity is. So you just, it doesn't hurt to take a temp especially if you're learning or you're not familiar with an area. You can start putting keep a little notebook at home. When you, when you get home, you kind of jot down your notes for the day, and you, you kind of put together patterns. But I would say more than carrying a thermometer around is just pay attention to the river and what's going on, not just within the river, but around the river, outside of the river, in the air. But if you're seeing little bugs pop around, you should know that in April, there's blueing olives coming off in April, same thing throughout the summer and the fall, but there's other, you know, you got PMDs and all these other bugs. And just being able to familiarize yourself with what bug is what color. And I think the entomology part is kind of one of the bigger mysteries for a lot of people, and it's more challenging, but I think it can be simplified and not be this, uh, or I, I think we can demystify it a little easier than I think people think. Paying attention to the surrounding environment is probably my biggest key to people. Yeah, yeah. David Steinberger in Boulder, Colorado, asks, uh, what hatch is going to present the best dry fly fishing, and what are the best conditions for that hatch? I think for the Williams Fork, I like the caddis. I mean, you get more action on the caddis than anything. Summer months, June, July, like late June, July, August up there, a pooterbaugh caddis with a little betis on the back end. You're not going to see the little betis very easily, especially if you're fishing it in the faster water. But when the flows drop, you know, and the flows have changed up there as far as what I like. I used to like 200 CFS on the Williams Fork. That was my ideal, 180 to 200. It's a little less than that now in certain areas. But the summertime dry fly fishing with caddis is fun. I mean, it's you can blind fish, and it's you know, you're fishing faster riffles, you're fishing up against banks, the grabs by the fish are quick and they're splashy and aggressive. So I think July, I would say July and August are probably my two favorite months for dry fly fishing up there because it's not technical. But then when we move into the beta hatches, both spring and summer, or excuse me, spring and fall, it's more technical, and especially in the wintertime with the midge fishing, it's, it's much more technical. But the July and August caddis fishing up there is great. A lot of fun. Okay, okay. We've got a couple questions here coming in on the internet. Brandon Lowitz in Boulder as well. He says, "Hey Chris, thanks for doing this talk. Can I, is there a midge nymph pattern that consistently produces for you on the Williams Fork, no matter what the month?" I think I would say probably a cream-colored midge. You know, Dorsey's got you know his little mercury midge just seems to get it done day in and day out up there. There are more cream-colored midges in the Williams Fork than darker ones from what I find. The Merc midge is great. Bar pier midge larva is a great one. I tie up a couple that you know are just a lighter-colored midge. Black Beauty or anything black, chocolate, foam wing, 
chocolate merger, which is kind of, you know, I'm imitating a midge merger with that, but those are kind of my go-tos up there. They're really simple. You know, I think people have gotten so into fly tying and creating flies, got some incredible fly tires out there these days. Guys like, like Charlie Craven, obviously, is one of the best fly tires out there. There's some other really good ones as well. But I think a lot of these flies these days are designed to catch fishermen, fly shop, not just fish. And you know, <laughs> I've been guiding with the same 40 trout patterns, 30 trout patterns for the last 20-some years, and they still produce. And I think a lot of it has to do with confidence. Just being confident, confident in, in the flies you're using will allow you to fish better because you're going to be more confident while you're fishing. I think just kind of the standard midge selection, especially the cream-colored midges, is what I would recommend up there. I'd run them in a size 16 to 22, maybe 24s in the winter months. But I think that cream-colored midge during the winter months or, or year-round, for that matter, is probably my go-to. Okay, okay. Another one. Peter Mosby, he must know you in Aurora. Chris, you're an amazing guide, husband, and Uh-oh. father. What? <laughs> what? Oh, what? No, he's being very nice to you. <laughs> uh, what, what two flies would you choose if you only had two to fish the Williams fork? Oh, that's. I think that's pretty easy. My top one, spring, summer, fall, would be a Sparklewing <laughs> RS2. Not the one you can buy in stores. It's one that Bob Churchill tied a long time ago when I first started guiding. He taught me the pattern. But the Sparklewing RS2 is probably my top producer up there. And I'd run either, I'd probably say a buckskin, which also doubles as as a cream-colored midge. But the buckskin buckskin and a Sparklewing RS2 are probably my top two producing nymphs up there. Is. Okay, not not two that I expected. Maybe the buckskin, but yeah. Uh, okay. Um, and a, and a, and a uh, shout out to Pete for, uh, for for listening tonight. What's up, Pete? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being real nice to you. Amazing guide, husband, and father. Jeez. Okay. Who would have known? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now we all know. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, this is a. Uh, Phil comes up with some crazy questions here sometimes, and he says, have you learned any lessons fishing the Williams Fork that translated well to fishing saltwater in the Florida Keys? You know, just, uh, I don't know. I mean, streamer fishing, I love fishing streamers, so I think streamer fishing has taught me how to manage and control my fly line over the years, I think line management is probably one of the most challenging aspects of fly fishing for newer anglers. When you're casting, when you're stripping, when you're not stripping, I mean, just fly line management. I think streamer fishing has a pretty easy transition over to saltwater fishing. Strip strikes on bonefish tarpon and permit versus trout hook sets, and it goes for the same for trout fishing. You know, when you're trout fishing with a streamer rig, you don't want to lift the rod on a bite. You need to stay with the line straight at the fish, the rod is straight at the fish. When it's a gentle draw tight until you're tight, once you're tight, then you can raise your rod. So I would say streamer fishing has helped me learn how to better manage my fly line in my hands and knowing what I'm doing in the river, and that's, I think, transitioned over into some saltwater stuff. Mm-hmm. I like that question. Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, he's very thoughtful in his question. Here's another one from Phil. 
He says, are there circumstances on the Williams Fork during which fishing streamers is a reasonable thing to do? Are there circumstances on the Williams Fork during which streamers, I mean, yeah, like when you've nymphed your way all the way to the top, turn around and tie on streamers and turn around and fish your way all the way back down to the bottom. <laughs> okay, well, anytime, you know? you've, you've, anytime, yeah. Yeah, you've nymphed it all the way up there. You know, streamer fishing is funny because there's days where they don't want them, there's days where they might touch it a little, and there's days where they are all over it. I like streamers because it's visual. You know, a lot of the time if you're a, an angler that's keyed into what's going on, you can see your streamers. You know, you can find your flies in the river pretty easily. You can watch fish pounce off the bank or bounce off the bank and pounce on your streamer. It's kind of a, I like, if I can, I try to get customers to catch fish on drives, nymphs, and streamers every day. The dry fly stuff is a little more challenging. We don't have the attractor dry fly fishing in Colorado in most areas anyways, like you do in other places. At least nymphing and streamer fishing. And when you're done nymphing, you know, turn around and run back through all the stuff you just nymphed with a streamer. And, you know, I think muddy water, fish are having a hard time seeing smaller bugs, maybe transitioning to them. I like fishing two flies always when I'm streamer fishing. I like them heavy. Usually I like one dark, one light colored. You know, I have a black bunny fly that I wrap heavy wire around the hook shank and then tie barbell eyes on it. And then I chase that with gray and white clouds or, or some big gray and white bunny fly behind it. But I just, I say fish streamers everywhere you go. You'll be surprised, even in the winter, when fish are supposed to be the most lethargic and their metabolism shuts down. Even in the winter, fish will grab a streamer because they know it, you know, they, they might have to work a little bit, but that's a big reward for a little extra work. It's just fun, you know, it's active. Yeah, yeah, and, and of course the takes are always fun too, right? Yeah, nothing. What kind of it. distance do you keep between the two flies? I try not to go too far because when you're throwing two heavy streamers, first my leaders are short. I run nothing less than 20 pounds to my first fly. And then when I'm, if I'm fishing two big heavy streamers, so I'm going, you know, maybe four to five feet at most for my, my leader length from the fly line to the first fly. And then 16, maybe out to 20, I would say 14, maybe out to 20 inches in between the two. But when you're throwing two big heavy streamers, it's a real awkward, clunky rig to cast. So you have to change your casting stroke. You have to open your loops. You know, we always try to teach people to tighten up loops for line speed, for less wind resistance, distance, all that kind of stuff. But when you throw a rig like that, I think it's better off opening, you know, you're opening, it's almost a Belgian loop cast, you know, where you're going down low and wide on your back cast and then up over your shoulder on your forward cast. But I think that rig is thrown around much easier by opening your cast and opening your loops and keeping those flies not real close to each other, like 14 to 18, somewhere in that ballpark I think is probably just fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good training for for the salt, right? Throwing those big flies. Yeah. Can be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Another question says, what's your favorite fly combo for late summer and fall? Fishing on the Williams Park. Bucks, buckskin and a sparkling RS2. <laughs> those two, okay. I mean, uh, we, to we, get, together. We kind of right? answered that on the earlier one. I mean, yeah, you know, I tie the buckskin on, I drop a sparkle wing RS2, I call it the sparkle deuce I'm off the back end of that. You know, I'll substitute the buckskin, I'll substitute that with a little Merc pheasant tail flashback, some of Craven's beta stuff, John Barr's beta stuff, San Juan 
worm, fishy for living daylights out of worms on Williams Fork. But I will 99% of the time, if I'm nymph and I will have a sparkling RS2 on there, spring, summer, and fall. There you go. Okay. Let me take a quick break, and we'll jump back in, talk a little bit more about flies and some of the other strategies you use there. So hang tight, everyone, and we'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish in their habitats like the peacock bass study in Miami, Florida. Fly Fishers International core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, and to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your support. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Chris Wells about the Williams Fork River in Colorado. If you'd like to ask Chris a question, just go to our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and fill out that form on the homepage, and we'll try to get your question answered here tonight. Okay. Let's see here. We kind of talked our way through the river. Oh, okay, here's, a, here's another uh, Phil McCartney question for you. After thinking you understand how to best fish the river, what are some examples of surprises the river has thrown at you? In other words, when you've been puzzled by why you are not catching fish, did you solve the puzzle, and if so, how? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, there's always days on every piece of water I've ever fished, whether it's a river, a lake, or an ocean, where I know a body of water really well, and for some reason I'm not catching fish, and trying to go through the problem-solving exercise. On the Williams Fork, I think the biggest thing most recently on that river has been after the restoration project that was done up there. I don't think the number of resident fish are in the river anymore. It's uh, It's been very interesting. I mean, my good friend, Pat Dorsey, he guides up there a lot as well. You know, he and I have kind of gone back and forth trying to figure out what's... So the, the fish seem to... We used to have really high numbers of fish in the Williams Fork all the way up to the Denver waterboard stretch. And I feel like those upper reaches now of the public access have fewer fish in them. There are some holes down the lower end that are just loaded with unbelievable numbers. You know, and I don't know if it's fish trying to get acclimated to the new stuff or what. I mean, there are learning how to fish a river after it's changed, you have to go back in there. I mean, I remember after, you know, we had, what, probably almost a dozen years ago or so, we had epic flows on the Williams Fork. We had over a 1,000 CFS come down that river. They had to release that much because we had so much snow melt. And it rearranged the river. I mean, I think the biggest thing it did was fill in a lot of the depth into that river, starting from you know below the confluence or at the confluence of the Colorado Williams Fork and 
you just had to relearn it. You know, you had to become intimate with it again. It was kind of fun in a sense because it was a new challenge, trying to figure out where the fish were. But you go through it like you do any new river. You start out in the back end. There's no bug hatches. You're probably fishing softer water. You're working your way up into the riffles. You know, if you see bugs, you're trying to pick out which bugs are coming off and imitate those. But I think the biggest challenge on the Williams Fork has been trying to figure out where these fish are and some of the new structure. Some of the new structure is impossible to fish around because it's all they've put logs in and anchored logs in with big boulders, and so you can't even get a clean drift through some of the stuff because of the wood in there. So trying to figure out how to fish that, I think it's forced me to fish dry flies a little bit more because technically, or typically, we would nymph a lot of this stuff, but now there's so many snags present in some of these areas you can't nymph them. So you know, throwing a streamer in a spot where I would have normally nymphed before or a dry fly in a spot where I would have normally nymphed before because you can't physically get all the way through that stretch of water without getting hung up on the wood in the river, stuff like that. But just yeah. going through it from start to finish, you know, working your way out from the inside of the bank to the outside of the, you know, the inside of the river to the outside, of, you know, if you're on a bend or uh, trying to do more sight fishing like that. Use, use your head more than your arm, right, trying to figure things out. Well, you've had, you know, on your private stretch here on the North Fork and the South Platte, you've had personal hand-to-hand -hand experience of rearranging the river, right? So you understand a lot of the principles of doing that. What do you think they did a mediocre job on the Williams Fork, or would well, you have done it differently if you were pushing the rocks and logs around? Yeah, so first of all, I, I think I need to be careful, you know, on how I talk about the project that was done up on the Williams Fork in the Colorado. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no doubt that river needed some work because when the river filled in after the real high flows, it did not, you know, it lost depth, and that was the biggest thing. So I think if I was the one in there with the excavator, which I've done. I'm by no means an expert at, at running an excavator in a river. I did it for an entire month. You know, about 10 years ago, I learned a ton by doing it. I have so much more to learn. I'm, like I said, I'm not an expert. But I think the biggest thing the Williams Fork needed was depth, keeping the same structure within the river. One of the challenges that I think Parks and Wildlife, the biologists were trying to, to deal with was they were looking ahead at or trying to think forward at future stream flows to come. You know, unfortunately, we're losing – water in the state of Colorado. I mean, the same amount of water is on this earth right now as it was when this earth was created. It's just in different forms, whether it be gases, liquids, or solids. But I think the fresh water, the amount of fresh water, the more extreme droughts. I mean, you look at the droughts on the Colorado this year, epic proportions. I was at a stakeholder meeting with Denver Water Board this summer. They were saying that if we have another winter on the upper Colorado River Basin, which includes the Upper Snake, the Blue River, the Williams Fork, the Fraser, all of it, everything that goes into the Colorado River. If we have another winter like we did last year, Lake Powell could go completely dry next year, which, I mean, oh. that's just mind-blowing. But I think moving forward, we're having to channelize rivers. I mean, I did the same thing on, on the North Fork. I mean, I tried to put an inline low-flow channel in, and they definitely did that on the Williams Fork. I mean, I was up there when they were in there, they were doing some surveying for Parks and Wildlife, I think. I think it was for them. But they were checking Riffle Run, 
tailout composition, you know, what percentage of the river is riffle run and what's moved, what hasn't. And they lowered flows down quite a bit so these guys could go in there and do the work, but the river channel had been narrowed to the point where it can still handle that low flow and the fish can still be in there. Hats off to them creating an inline low flow channel because it still made the river even more fishable at low flows, being spread bank to bank and only a couple, three, four inches deep bank to bank. It's now in a much smaller channel, but we still have depth. So I think they did that really well up there. But I think, I mean, there are certain holes that, that are completely gone and now it just doesn't, I mean, I don't even know what's there in this place. It doesn't make sense to me, but it's a work in progress. I think eventually at some point in time, they'll probably have to go back in there and tweak it and whatnot. I think deepening up that river was is the most important thing we can do in areas up there that will help keep resident fish in there. I think with anything, right, there are certain things that turn out great, certain things that we learn from. I think it's a work in progress, but the work they did has definitely improved certain areas. I mean, there's some holes that they've made so much better and then other holes that I just I don't really care for as much but you know it's uh I wasn't you, the one painting the picture so yeah you know. did you do you think when you say there might not be uh as many fish in some areas as there once were did those fish move down did they move into the Colorado did they die what do you yeah, think, I think I don't think they died. I think they moved down. I don't think they like being in the river. I've not had time to talk to the biologists up there and get some of their, their shocking reports to see what fish numbers are. I mean, I might be surprised. Maybe i got to get better at catching them again in that river. You know, maybe I struggle <laughs> yeah. with that. There's, there's yeah. days when I go in there and I whack them good, and then there's days in there where I'm like, wow, I'm really disappointed in how it goes. And the Willie's Fork has always been such a constant reliable fishery and it seems like it's super hot and cold now at times i don't know i need to see what the shocking reports are are like up there to be able to probably truly speak on that but i do feel like the number of resident trout in that river have decreased especially in certain reaches while in other reaches on that river i think the resident population has increased so i don't it's not you can't look at the whole river and sum it up as one. You know, you have to break it down yeah. into small sections. So it's yeah, it's a pretty complicated process, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Question in on the internet here from Cal Callagher in Maryland. He says, "I had the pleasure of being guided by Chris in the Keys. He's a first-class guide." Question: You mentioned that you like a nine-foot five weight. What are your favorite brands over the years in five weights? Oh, I don't know. I think I've always been a sage guy over the years. Fly rods are a tool, and just like carpenters like certain types of tools, they like the way they fit in their hand, they like the way they feel in their hand, they like the way the action of the rod is designed, whether it's stiffer or softer, and I think that like I've always said to every single customer, don't ever let anybody tell you that there's one best fly rod out there because this guy or gal over here versus this guy or gal or over here, they might they have different casting styles. And, you know, some people are more aggressive. Some people are, are a little more gentle and methodical with their casting. And so I think each of these manufacturers tends to offer a different style of rod or a different action on the rod. You know, Winston has always been a pretty soft rod. I had a tarpon customer bring a couple of Winstons on my boat this year. And I picked them up, and I was really pleasantly surprised by them. And I've normally 
not been as big of a Winston fan because they're a little softer fly rod. I think great for dry fly fishing, but for chucking a tarpon fly 40, 50 feet into a 20-mile-an-hour wind, for my casting style, they collapsed. I couldn't get it done. But I think Sage makes a great rod. I like some of the Winston stuff out there. I like some of the, the Orvis H3 is super quick and super light. That's been a fun rod to around. Um, there are some really great Scott rods out there. There are so many different manufacturers these days. I, you know, I'm not in a shop anymore working, so I don't even know what's out there anymore. I just know what, what I like. But I think most importantly, you should go to a place and you should try it out. Try it, drive it before you buy it. And you should be able to go outside and throw it around in the, the shop yard and see whether you like it or not. But for me, Say, I think Sage has always been kind of, I've been drawn to Sage, I think, over the years. Yeah, yeah. It's really kind of hard to buy a bad fly rod nowadays, right? I mean, yeah. I mean there are I so mean, many I've, good ones. <laughs> I've had customers show up with some entry-level fly rods, and, they, and then when I picked it up and tossed it around for a second, I'm really pleasantly surprised. I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. This is a really, I mean, 20 years ago, that was a top-of-the-line fly rod feel, you know, and now it's yeah. an entry-level <laughs> fly rod. I think technology has changed so much, and I think it's enabled the manufacturers to really change the way they make rods. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're down to it. i got two more questions for you. What is the behavior of the bigger fish on the Williams Fork? Do they come to the surface, or are they strictly nymph, minnow, crawfish eaters? Well, I've never seen a crawfish on the Williams Fork, so I don't know if they're eating crawfish or not. There's got to be some crawfish probably in the lake, and they probably get out into the river below. I've never seen one. I think the bigger fish are typically down deeper and harder to find places. I don't, I, you know, I think they do more hunting than you know, kind of the frolicky, oh, let's go eat this bug on the surface over here and bounce around kind of thing. I will say the biggest fish I've ever taken off the Williams Fork. I was fishing with another friend of mine, longtime guide, Luke Beaver. He and I took this gal up there just as kind of a, a fun day for the three of us. And embarrassingly, I, this is the old broker, it used to be the old leaning tree hole. The, I fished it. I took, I don't know, a handful of fish out of this river. My buddy Beaver put this gal in the same spot, and she hooked into and eventually ended up landing. It took both of us to land this fish for her, but she landed a 26-inch brown trout, and that was the biggest fish in there, and it was right in the same spot I was fishing. You know, he just didn't like either my bugs or my drift or whatever, but I think most of those bigger fish, I think the big, big fish in the Williams Fork live in the Colorado, and I think they move up into that river during certain times of the year. I don't think there's always – they're not always in there. They're not the residents of the – the Williams Fork, but I think mm -hmm. most of the big fish in most rivers tend to typically kind of stay out of the way. They, they kind of run a little bit more under the radar, if you will, and they're, you know, they feed subsurface and they may chase smaller trout or other bait fish around, which is why I think we catch bigger fish on streamers more than we do on nymphs typically. But they're definitely harder to find, but there are some big fish in there. There's some giants in the Williams Fork. It just sometimes takes years and years of fishing it to find them. Okay. One final question for you here. Keaton in Durango, Colorado. He says, hey, Chris, I'm a young 22-year-old avid fly fisherman in the Durango area. As I graduate this spring with an environmental degree, I want to see if there's any avenues in the guide world for a person with my degree. Also, as a young fisherman, what are good first steps to one day being a master guide like you? Thanks so much. <laughs> oh, what's up, Keaton? Uh, thanks for your question, man. Wow. 
if you want to be financially stable in life, don't be a fishing guide. Um, <laughs> that's, that's my first bit of advice. And if you want to stay married for a long time, no. Um, I'm joking. Oh, my, my, my wife is, uh, unfortunate. she's very supportive of what I do. It does not come without struggle. But, you know, it depends on what, you know, kind of your emphasis and the environmental degree is. But there's, man, there are, there's plenty of room for more fishing guides. And I think the biggest thing you need to do, one, you need to be a really good angler off the bat to be able to take people out on guided trips. You have to know rivers inside and out. You have to be able to teach and demonstrate, you know, whether it's casting skills or this and that and the other. You've got to be super proficient with tying rigs quickly. You've got to be a psychologist. You've got to be a therapist, a shoulder to cry on, all these different things. So, you know, it just takes time. I would recommend trying to find a way to be around somebody who is willing to mentor you. When I first started guiding, I was very lucky, and Pat Dorsey took me under my wing or under his wing, and you know he kind of sh- showed me the ropes and taught me the shortcuts and the do's and the don'ts. And not all good fishermen are great guides. Patience is a huge thing. I think a younger guide always wants their customers to catch the most amount of fish possible, but it's not always about numbers in the bag at the end of the day. You know, there's more to fishing than catching fish. And my dad, that's one of my dad's things that he taught me when I was a little kid, is that there's more to fishing than catching fish. And I think if you can take people out on the river and you can help them see that, of course you need to catch some fish because that's what initially gets everybody out on the river. But no, it just, it takes a long time. I mean, I learn every day when I go out and, uh, you know, I think now it's, they're kind of smaller, more minute details as far as what I learn on a day-to-day basis, but I learn every day. I don't. I think that's the beauty of this sport is you'll never master it. I don't think anybody can ever perfect it. There's always room to grow. There's always room to learn. If you have a passion for it, follow your passion and, you know, try and get on with a shop or it might even take two shops. You're going to live dirt poor and you better like ramen noodle in the early stages of it because you're not going to make very much money, but you know, if you stay at it and you're good at it, you'll make it. Yeah, yeah. I think a couple other skills is being a storyteller and a entertainer helps too. Oh I yeah. Thought. I mean, I've been. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been permit fishing in Belize all day. Not one hook up. Saw a lot of fish, a lot of casts, and had a great day because my guide was a great guide. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and it wouldn't trade it for a day full of fish. So, yeah, yeah. There's a a lot of aspects to it that make for a a good guide. And you're right. Also, just because you're skilled, and this is in life in in a lot of areas, just because you're skilled, a certain skill, doesn't mean you're a good instructor or a good guide or a good mentor or a a lot of those things because there's so many other parts of those pieces and parts to that, to being able to do that properly than just knowing the skill, right? So. I think, yeah. I think probably my biggest thing for Keaton would be maybe, you know, like you have to make sure you're organized, make sure you're punctual, make sure you're professional. There's a new standard, you know, and this started kind of when I was younger and guiding, but people demand professionalism. I mean, guided fishing trips are not cheap anymore, and if it is cheap, you're probably not going out with a great guide. And when people are paying top dollar for a guided trip, you know, everything has to run smoothly and flawlessly, and 
you have to be prepared. You can't show up. You know, you can't forget lunch. You can't forget your nets. You can't forget fly. You know, whatever. You just you have to be professional through and through. You have to be encouraging. Um, you know, Roger, you hit it on the button. You have to be an entertainer and a therapist. I mean, all these different things. Right. We wear so many different hats. You have to be a janitor. <laughs> you have to yeah. be a professional. This one goes is a shout out to my good buddy Captain Matt Thomas. You have to be a professional cooler technician. You have to be able to take <laughs> care of every aspect of it. And the most importantly, you have to take somebody fishing, teach them what you know, show them a good time, and you know, and I think the rest kind of falls in place, but you just you have to be professional. I think that's the yeah. bottom line. And you are a professional, Chris. I can attest to that. Uh, Chris guided me and my son and a friend several times, and we had a great time with Chris, and uh, he knows his stuff. So if you're thinking about Colorado or you're thinking about Florida, look Chris up on his website and see if you can get a day with him because I know you'll enjoy it. So, Well, we're out of time, Chris. Stick with me for a few more minutes because we're going to give a few things away here and finish things up. And So hang tight. Okay, bud? Thank you. Yeah. When we return, we're going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and we'll also be giving away a book courtesy of Sackball Books. So hang tight, and we'll do that in just a moment. Bristol Bay is the lifeblood of Alaska, home to the world's largest wild sockeye salmon run. The bay provides tens of thousands of Alaskan jobs and feeds Americans from coast to coast. Its pristine waters have sustained the indigenous peoples of the region for millennia, and each year tens of thousands of anglers and visitors from around the world are drawn to this extraordinary beauty and abundance. The fly community has been at the vanguard of the battle to protect Bristol Bay for many years. A resolution may be within our reach, but we need everyone to keep engaged. Go to StopPebbleMineNow.org and give them your support. Again, it's StopPebbleMineNow.org. Just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments, and we'd really appreciate it. So now we're going to give away a few prizes. The winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you're selected from tonight, we will contact you after the show uh, to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first one we're giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. To learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org and uh, give them your support, please. Um, Okay, let me fire up the database here and... It looks like uh, Nick Noth, not, not half, not half uh, in Colorado. Just got yourself a one-year membership, Nick. So we'll be contacting you after the show to get you arranged to take advantage of that. And then we're giving away a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com, a great source for books and other publications. So check them out. And our winner there is Carl Arsand, uh, Carl Arsand in Maine. So congratulations to both you gentlemen, and I know you'll enjoy your your prizes there. So now we'll give away courtesy of Stackpole Books, a book from a list that I have. And so I'm going to ask a question, and you need to provide the answer in that form on our homepage. So put in your answer, your name, and your location, 
And if you're the first one to get the, the correct answer to me, then you'll win a book from Stackpole Books. So uh, the question is, what was the CFS range that Chris liked for the Williams Fork? What was the CFS range? He gave two numbers for that. So tell me what that is, and we'll get you a book. So while they're typing and figuring that all out, Chris, it's time for you to entertain, Chris. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Oh, you're lucky, Chris. You got off the hook. Somebody's already provided the answer. So, all right. <laughs> uh, we've got Joel Wilson in Sheridan, Wyoming. He says 180 to 200. Is he correct? There you go. That's what there I said. Go. Yeah. That's what he and said. And actually, and just just to be so, he's correct because those are the numbers I said. I said I used to like right. the 180 to 200 CFS. For the, for the listening audience out there, I like it a little less than that now. It's a little easier to manage about 150, 120 to 150. Okay. Okay, good. Good. But, so we got but he got it right. He got it right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, uh, that's what we talked about. Yeah. Well, great. Great. Well, and Joel, what you need to do is send me, I've got your name, I've got your email address in that same form, send me your shipping address. And then I will send you an email with a list of books for you to choose from, and then I'll ship it out to you. Uh, thanks for paying attention and uh, and playing. And thanks for, for Nick and Carl, too, for playing as well. Chris, hey, I really appreciate you being with us. Uh, it was a, a great pleasure and lots of fun talking with you about fishing. And thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thanks for having me, Roger. Really appreciate it. And if anybody has any questions, you guys know how to reach me on either website. I respond to email both uh, typically mornings and evenings. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Chris. Have a good evening. Yes, sir, you hopefully, too. Hopefully you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line menu. In the archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 345 shows, I think, now, which you can search by keyword, keyword phrase. We've put in a menu there as well so that you can kind of find things by topics. I think you'd be pleasantly surprised with all the information there, so check it out. Our next broadcast will be on December 15th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'll interview Landon Mayer, and our topic for the show will be guide flies. Landon spends thousands of hours each year on the water guiding his clients to trophy trout, and he doesn't have time to tie complex, time-consuming patterns, so he ties simple, easy-to-tie fly patterns that get the job done day in and day out. So join us to learn about Landon's top patterns and how he fishes them to catch trout around the world. Be sure to add this upcoming show to your calendar. Just click on that Add to Calendar button below Landon's picture on our homepage, and then you'll be all set. You get that added to your calendar. I'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Lease Ferry Anglers, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.